You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's episode, which ventures into a post-military career that we have not ever discussed on this show. Uh, Going to be very, very exciting. Stay with us. Uh, our normal announcements, so please follow us on the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. You guys are not doing a good enough job of that. I tell you that because I love you. But uh, it's one of those things where we are competing with a bunch of other podcasts out there. If we can grow this thing from a social media standpoint with all the work that we do on social media and all the folks that we're connected to, uh, it's certainly going to help us grow. So give us a follow, tell friends, give us a like or subscribe on our YouTube channel as well. All that stuff is going to continue to help grow this show. Get us more guests, get us more notable guests, and certainly uh, continue to tell some of these stories that absolutely need to be heard. So again, follow us on all the social media sites. Continue to leave Apple reviews. Also helps grow the show. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. doesn't have to be a lengthy review. I certainly like reading them and certainly appreciate everybody uh, taking the time to do so. Don't forget to download the Killcliff TV app as well, along with our YouTube channel and the Killcliff TV app. You can watch all of our episodes for the show. Uh, and go to KillCliff.com for all your clean energy drinks, KillCliff.com, CBD, energy, as well as clean energy, whatever you guys need. I use the pre and post-workout stuff. It is fantastic. Some of the best energy drinks on the market. Monster Red Bull, they suck. KillCliff, KillCliff.com, the way to go to get all of your clean energy as well. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon on our website, HazardGround.com. Go to HazardGround.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. And it'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend. And then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. Easy and simple way to help out veterans charities just by doing Amazon shopping. Also works from your smartphone where you can uh, get redirected to the Amazon app. It makes it really easy and convenient because all your credit card information is saved and everything else. So again, hazardground.com, you're going to do any Amazon shopping. All right, on to this week's guest. Uh, who spent eight years in the Army and then left the military at the rank of Staff Sergeant. He had three deployments to Afghanistan. And after his military career, went into, let's call it, and he'll probably correct me on this, but performance art and became the creator of Modern Warrior Live, which is an immersive narrative and music experience that chronicles our guest journey through his three deployments in Afghanistan. He is James Poling joining us here on the Hazard Ground. James, welcome, brother. Great, Great to have you. Thanks for being here. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mark. All right. Um, I mean, is it fair to say performance art? Like, here's the thing. We've, <laughs> we, we, listen, we've interviewed people who've gone into movies. We've interviewed people who've gone into TV. We've interviewed, you know, politicians, everybody else. Like, you know, we, we've had some pretty, you know, unique and interesting folks on this show, but I've never had anybody who's like made a musical or like anything, <laughs> you know, almost Broadway-esque, if you will, yeah. uh, in the performance arts area. So like the idea of telling a story like yours through that medium is incredibly intriguing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, and if I'm being completely honest, I mean, I was, I was pulled into it. It was a sense of obligation at the beginning. Um, you know, I, I was one of those dudes when I got out of the military, I was like, you know, if in five years, nobody knows I was ever in the military, then I did a good job transitioning into whatever this next chapter is. Not that I, you know, I love my time in the military and stuff and nothing but great things to say about it. But 
Um, you know, but I was just ready to, to close that chapter and open a new one. And so, you know, the transition was rocky for a couple of years and we could get into that if you want. Sure, but yes. um, once I got through that and really kind of got back on track, you know, I was running like the vet program at school. I was finishing a finance degree. I was interested in strategy consulting and trying to figure out the right grad school path to that stuff. And this, uh, this musician, Dominic Farinacci, through a mutual friend, reached out to me and he was doing like a Tom Waits music video cover. And the film crew was like the film crew from the deadliest catch. She had like this cool wow. team around it. And, uh, and I met with him because he wanted to do this music video about a vet returning from war. And I just wanted to make sure he balanced that narrative. You know, like right. I, I feel like the, the awareness campaign for post-traumatic stress was, it was great. And it, it did a, did a good job of, doing what it was supposed to do. But I think one of the unintended side effects was that it could feel prescriptive. So I know when there's individuals like myself getting out, looking around, um, and I didn't really have anyone in my family that was close to me that had been through similar military experiences. Uh, and, you know, I was just living in Cleveland on my own. So as I looked around for examples of individuals that had gone through what I'd gone through and transitioned, I was just finding like those stigma stories you know like the the damaged veteran the liability veteran or like the hero veteran and it's really easy for i think most of us to throw that I'm one out sure. yeah. and say okay well then at, what you know with this damaged vet liability at what where do i fit into the rest of this narrative um and so by the time i'd worked through that you know i, I had kind of a a critical outlook on pushing that narrative too much so i met dominic and asked him to just balance that in his music video you know, I, I told him like the last thing we need is another video where all of it is just, you know, vets in the bathroom with a gun to their head. I was like, we got to be responsible. Yeah. We got to balance it. We got to inspire and we got to highlight the people that made those successful transitions and how they did that. And, and oh, by the way, that like that's the least of the, you know, scenarios that's actually realistic. Um, of course, yeah. that. So I don't know who, who decided that was the bathroom was the place where all <laughs> veterans go to contemplate. Uh, suicide and, and staying on this earth. But, you know, I mean, hey, shitty situation, right? Uh, so I guess it's appropriate nonetheless. But Modern Warrior Live is deb- debuted in 2017. It's done more than 100 live performances across the country in theaters, mental and mental health and veteran conferences, galas, high schools, trauma centers, and more. We'll, we'll get back to Modern Warrior Live in a minute. But, uh, you, you know, you talked a little bit about your post-military career. How does it start for you? When do you get in the Army and why? Uh, I, man, growing up, I was, I was dead set on, uh, joining the military probably from the time I was like 11 or 12. Uh, really? yeah, I would, yeah. I mean, I was, I was pretty set on the Marine Corps. I was pretty well like locked into it. Did you watch uh, a few good men and thought it was, thought it was worthwhile? Oh man. I think, I think it was like the full metal jacket stuff. Oh uh, yeah. All of that pulled me in. And, uh, you know, I, I come from Northeast Ohio, kind of the, the Rust Belt area where you saw a lot of factory jobs leaving. Uh, a lot of friends looking for those factory jobs that were left. And I knew I wasn't ready to go to school. I didn't know if I wanted to. Uh, and I didn't, I couldn't really see myself going anywhere else. Uh, and so, you know, I think even right after my 16th birthday, I started hanging out at like the Marine recruiters. I was doing their delayed entry program stuff with them. And then uh, when it came time to join, I just, you know, I, I was like, I just want an infantry slot. Like if you can guarantee me an infantry slot, I'm, I'm in. And uh, they, they said they couldn't guarantee me an infantry slot at the time. Um, even though I'd, I'd kind of been around for about a year with them, but, you know, the Army was 
across the hallway offering me the 82nd and the sign on bonus and some promotions. And of course, guaranteeing me that infantry slot. And so the, that was kind of what was most important for me. I, I had this idea probably developed when I was like 15, that if, if I could place myself in combat and understand one of those more, you know, primal human experiences that I must discover something profound about myself. There was this like, like most young people trying to figure out who I am. I mean, what 15 year old is reading freaking philosophies trying to figure out the <laughs> existential questions of life? What does this come about? I don't, I don't know. I mean, 9-11 was part of all of that. So I okay. think some of it was like so the opportunity. That happened while you were in high school? Yeah, 9-11 happened while I was in high school. And so I, I saw that opportunity there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there, there was a sense of patriotism folded into all of that. Uh, but really, I think like most young people, I wanted to discover who I was. And I saw that as the challenge. I think that was the allure of the Marine Corps for me growing up, too. Yeah. If I'm being honest, it was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to join the Marines. I'm going to discover who I am. And uh, it, but beyond that Marine Corps thing, it, it was really the, the combat experience that I was looking for. And uh, it was probably a little naive, but uh, I think I got what I was looking for. Uh, to quote Full Metal Jacket, uh, did mommy and daddy not love you enough when you were a kid? Is that why you sought uh, the bonds of, of brotherhood and war? Is yeah, there's probably some stuff to get into there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to be your psychologist. Uh, so yeah, that be, that's somebody else's job. I'm just a bad, bad uh, podcast host and talk show host. So there's that. All right. So you sign up. You're going for infantry. Um, clearly wanted to go in the military. You had to have had a preconceived notion about basic training and how difficult it was going to be and everything else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if I'm if I'm being honest, I mean, I th- you know, in the army, the whole infantry things that OSUT thing at Benning you know, it was 14 mm-hmm. weeks yep. of basic infantry school together at the time. Um, I, I mean, honestly, it was, it was easier than I, I was expecting. I think that, you know, like w- when you first get there, it's it's hectic. But once you realize like, OK, we just got to work together on this. It, it all it all gets pretty easy sure. at that point, you know, once once you're all looking out for each other. Were drill instructors yelling about you about combat in basic training? I mean, was that something that they tried to use to? Un- and I only asked that because you specifically had sort of this philosophical, romantic yeah. picture of what combat does, and and I wonder if when they said something like that, you're like, okay, great, yeah, that's fine, I'm good. Yeah, we did. I remember we we watched some videos. They showed some like pictures and stuff from their deployments. Um, it, it was always kind of very clear that uh, you know whether it was my leaders in the 82nd or or it was the drill sergeants or airborne instructors really anywhere i was they uh they were always reiterating the fact that like hey you're you're going to war after this um and so they kept it very much in the front of our minds um you know to the point that like the cadences even felt different than i think most cadences would feel without a war uh so yeah i mean it was something that i i always we we seemed pretty aware of and and i think that uh you know, everybody knew that's where we were headed. And so I think for that reason, we were almost harder on each other, even in basic, the unit, than, um, than the drill instructors or some of the trainers might be uh, just because, you know, we were, we were expecting to get into that. I feel like I want to ask you this question after repeated phases throughout your career. Um, but, you know, is there a part of you that pauses and existentially, I guess, you know, is introspective and looking at the process you're going through and feeling some sense of pride or gratitude or, you know, uh, you know, are you overwhelmed with, you know, this is where I'm meant to be in the universe kind of deal as you're 
living this suck kind of, I mean, is any of that hitting you as you're going through basic training? Um, basic, tra- I didn't feel it so much in basic training. It, it kind of felt like a means to an end. You know, there, there was this sense of like, yeah, this kind of sucks, but it, it's, it's temporary. Um, I mean, I think even airborne school, I was always kind of looking at that finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then I, I think in a lot of those schools too, I mean, they keep you so busy that, you know, you don't really spend too much time pontificating and, you know, I'm usually just in, in, in retrospect, when you yeah. look back on it and you start to tell your story in modern warrior live, is there any part of the basic training experience that comes forward more than you thought it would? Mm, yeah. Um, so I actually, in, in the show, I talk about like my first, my first like real personal interaction with a drill sergeant. And uh, it was at, it was at 30th AG. It was like the in-processing place at Benning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm just getting my uniforms, get all my shots and stuff like that. And you know, the drill starts to like come mess with you in the, the barracks area that they would keep you. And I remember one of them came up to me and he asked me if I had a girlfriend. And I was, it's kind of weird, but I was like, yeah, I have a girlfriend. And then he just immediately started laying into me and he was like, shut the fuck up. I know you have a girlfriend. And then he went into like this really like detailed description of raping my girlfriend, but she loves it because she's a whore and like all kinds of crazy stuff. And so that was like my first drill sergeant interaction. And then I realized. Yeah. You could tell this was like, you know, post or pre 2010 easily. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it it got kind of racial with it. It it, it was uh, weird for a little bit. Um, But then I realized like, Oh, okay. You know, the, the drill sergeants, that uh, might cause a couple issues and the platoons tend to get sent over to the, uh, to the reception unit and spend a little more time there. So, uh, you know, when, when I actually got to meeting my drill sergeants in basic, they were, you know, they, they were more relaxed than he was. So, uh, you know, so th- there was that. And then, um, yeah, and then it was really just the learning to work together, um, you know, realizing like, Hey, this sucks, but it sucks less when you lean on each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that's really what uh, what I try to get across in the show about basic training. So you finish basic, you go to airborne school, you know, uh, infantry, you know, AIT or, you know, as part of OSIT and everything else, all that stuff. Anything seminal about, you know, the rest of that that stays with you or is it sort of just run of the mill for you, airborne school and the rest? Um, through the training experiences? Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I mean... I guess parts of airborne school stick with me just because of the the cross service nature of it, you know, like having the, the PJs from the air force going through their training pipeline there, you know, the Marines coming over some of the Navy guys. Um, so really getting that experience of starting to, to work with some of the other branches um, outside of that though. Yeah. There's, there's not too much that really stands out. I'm sure at the time there was, uh, I just think, you know, probably getting to the 82nd and the deployment experiences really kind of took over, you know, those experiences in my memory bank, I would think. When do you get to the 82nd, like year and month? Um, February 2006. Okay, so uh, Iraq is well on its way. Did, when you get there, how quickly do you deploy? When do you start first hearing that that you're going? Yeah, so the Army was like switching, the mod, doing the modular Army switch yeah. at the time. Oh, oh yeah. So. Yeah. Force, force modulation force 21 or whatever the hell it was called <laughs> yeah yeah so my uh my battalion was actually coming back from iraq I, I was there for i don't know maybe a month while they were on their way back and 
you know, and so I was, I was hearing about, you know, their stuff on the Syrian border and their stuff in Fallujah. And, um, and so I, you know, I started preparing myself to get ready for that. And then we realized we were going to Afghanistan. So I think I, I was there for about a year, close to a year, maybe 10, 11 months, something like that before I deployed. And then uh, my first deployment, I think I was over there for 16 months. And then that was all Kandahar. So we were um, the, the TTF for RC South. So we based out of Kandahar and, you know, we'd fly out, we'd fly into kind of up and down the Helmand River Valley, Sangin, Muscala, Kajaki. Um, it was a good bit of fighting in a lot of those places. We jumped up to Jalalabad to help support Rock Avalanche. Uh, that was actually really boring for us. I don't know. They just like threw us on a mountaintop somewhere and froze our ass off. Um, but, you know, I know, of course, it wasn't the case for, you know, the, the, uh, the other guys there on the ground for sure. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting time too, because you'd go, you'd fight, and then technology was to the point that I could come back to Kandahar after these fights. And, you know, I think one mission I was out for, I don't remember, 60 something days. And then there'd be some missions where I'd be out for like a week. But then I could come back and like Yahoo Messenger was a thing at the time and Facebook was taking off. And so I'd come back and get online, get on Yahoo Messenger. You could order a pizza and have it delivered from like the Pizza Hut to your room. So it was this weird meshing of like, (laughs) of, of kind of intense combat. And then coming back and talking to girls back home and getting food delivered, you know, and I'm 18 or 19 at the time. Um, I think it was 19. So it, it, I feel like it, it created a unique combat experience for, for us. Um, you know, that a lot of other people. What is your first combat experience like? Uh, so the, the first time I was ever shot at that I recognized I was getting shot at. I mean, my, my first mission, we flew out and they are, we ended up having to like walk through some minefields for a while and a bunch of our vehicles got blown up. Um, and at the end of that mission, you know, we came down off a hilltop. We were waiting for the Chinooks to come pick us up. And we saw some people up on the hilltop kind of rummaging through our stuff. And it's dark, so I'm looking through night vision. And then I just saw like, you know, it looked like a fuse or like somebody starting a lighter or something up on top of the hill. And and then uh, my squad leader at the time, like jumped behind my rucksack because I had everything off while we were waiting for the birds. And then I realized like we were getting shot at by an RPG. And so the RPG flew by us and <laughs> stuck in the ground. And I guess whoever shot it didn't pull the pin or something. I mean, it literally just like stuck in the ground and we just moved, you know, like another mile away to wait for the birds. That was the first time I was shot at and uh, it, it bugged me that I didn't know what was happening. You know, like I, I, I felt pretty useless and well, you, uh, you were trained for that moment. <laughs> yeah. I had, I had no idea. You had none of it stuck, right? <laughs> I had, I had no idea what an RPG looked like through night vision at like, you right. know, 600 meters or something like that. Um, and that was all that was fired at us. You know, there wasn't any gunfire. And of course the Afghan army immediately starts like shooting at the hill and running up the hill. Cause those guys are, you know, they're ballsy if, <laughs> if anything, in some, There's in some fine line between brains and balls in combat, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, man. And so that was the first time I was shot at and then going into other cities like Sangin, then you start to get into some of the more, 
some of the firefights where, you know, you're getting shot at from an area, but you can't really tell who's shooting at you from where, you know, so you're, you're there with, I was on a gun team at the time. And so, you know, like we're shooting into bushes and stuff where we, you know, we know we're taking fire from, but we don't know exactly where. So I had some of those firefights in areas like that, you know, um, some people trying to, to ram you with vehicles, shooting into vehicles. Uh, but then by the time I got to Musicala, and I always remember the date because we flew out on December 7th. Um, so, you know, it's an easy one to remember. Um, that, was, that was probably about four days of, of straight fighting. And a lot of that was like building to building fighting. Um, I was a 240 gunner at the time. And so I was carrying that dismounted. And that was where I started to see kind of the, the more intense combat, you know, like you, you see the people shooting at you, you see them coming around corners, you're trying to get them, they're getting your friends, you know. Uh, is, and- there, is there any part of you, the philosophical existential part of you, mm-hmm. that in those moments of sort of close quarters combat, um, you know, that has a moment of reflection or pause, uh, you know, the whole, we've talked about this a lot on the show, like the minute you pull that trigger, you're never the same again, right? Yeah. Like you, you, you are a different person um, and watching a silhouetted target fall mm-hmm. uh, is different than watching a body fall on the other end of it. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's funny. I, I talk about this in the show too. I mean, at the time, I remember people, people would ask me like, what does it feel like to kill someone? And I was young and like arrogant and all, all of those things that we can be. You say the stupid things that you're not supposed to say, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd be like, I don't know. What's it feel like to make a grilled cheese? That was like my answer when people would be like, what's it feel like to kill someone? I mean, like, what's it feel like to make a grilled cheese? I don't, I don't know. Um, but really, you know, I, I think they, they were all different um, more than anything. I think I felt relief, you know, cause I, being behind the 240 i know they're trying to get to my guys i'm trying to stop them from being able to maneuver to my guys or i'm just trying to gain fire superiority um so you know each time i would get one of them i'd be like cool that's another guy that's not getting to the buildings my guys are in um and and i mean honestly i when i came out of that mission i i mean it it changed my confidence level completely you know i could feel like i it went up yeah, like I way more like I walked differently. I could feel I stood up straighter to the point that I could feel it in my back. And, and let's let's be clear on this um, for the civilians watching, and listening. And I, I think I'll speak for you here because I, I, we've had this conversation before. Yeah. That's not confidence because I killed somebody or I took out the bad guys. That is confidence that I validated my training, I protected my brothers, and I accomplished a mission. All those are cornerstones of military service right it's it's not necessarily about the destruction on the other end mm-hmm. for the existential person understands that fulfilling those mission sets is the definition of the quality of the soldier that you are so this is where war needs to have context and it never does for anybody who's never been there um the context of it is more important for me to do my job and protect my brothers and accomplish the mission. Um, and the results of that, I can't necessarily control or the amount of the amount of damage that's on the other end of that isn't my responsibility. My responsibility is to those things first. And those all are sitting behind me, not on the other end of what is coming out of my, my, my 240 Bravo. So, you know, I, I think it's just worthwhile to make that distinction. Yeah. That, yeah. That's a great point. And thanks for, for making that because 
yeah, I mean, I, for me at the core of that confidence shift was the recognition of like, okay, now I'm capable. Like now I'm proficient. Now I can protect my guys. You've also grown trust. Of and course. Yeah. And there, there are guys who know that you got their back and that they got yours mm-hmm. and to survive in combat. That is the confidence as you, as you labeled it, that you need because without it, you know, you're a man on an Island and that's a mm-hmm. bad place to be uh, when you're fighting bad dudes um, thinking that you're the only one that, that's alone. And, and I do the same, like I've done the same thing, you know, I mean, we've gotten to firefights and me being like an athlete guy and like a baseball player, you know, you know, as we're things calm down, I walked up to him, you know, like the first base coach gives the guy a pat on the butt, you know, a little smack on yeah. the touch for a job well done. That was me, you know, and that yes. was a hey, job well done. Thanks for killing somebody. It was job well done, man. You know, we're all here. We're all safe. You know, like we're all together. Um, and it's that sort of camaraderie, you know, that sort of uh, uh, connection that allows us all to become stronger. And let's just put this out there. The downside of that is that when it doesn't go your way and someone is lost, the wound is that much deeper. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that was huge. And I, I didn't lose somebody close to me in my unit until my second deployment. But yeah, that. <laughs> um, yeah, that was that was a game changer. I mean, yeah, to your point, completely reframed how I viewed firefights. I mean, I think on my first deployment, once I started getting into some of the more intense firefights, um, you know, to your point, you'd asked about like, you know, kind of that that existential recognition. I think I'd completely transitioned from that mindset to this mindset of, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm going to protect my guys to the best of my ability. I know they're doing the same for me. Uh, but I'm probably going to die here at some point. Well, and, it goes from existentialist to survivalist. Yeah. And well, and then I, once I even accepted, like, I'm, I'm probably not going to make it out of yep. these time and time again, then, you know, I, I start acting a little more reckless. You know, I, I start yep. taking cover a little less. I start, you know, running a little slower from one point to the other. Um, because it, I got to the point where I was like, it's, it's a reality. It's going to happen at some point. Uh, you know, and I think the, the longer I was in, the more I was able to get away from that again, as I saw the fighting evolve. Uh, but, but really that, that took over, you know, and any thought of like, let me go discover myself was taken over by like, let's just, let's just do as much as I can while I'm here to, right. to make sure, you know, everyone's and, safe. And- a glimpse into PTSD um, for those who don't have it or have never suffered from it and those who haven't been in combat. Being faced with your own mortality on such a daily and routine basis to the point where you become numb to your own mortality is probably the most damaging thing that can happen to your psyche. And we don't, we don't ever talk in those terms. I don't know why it's never talked about. Like It's, it's that simple and, and that everybody else who doesn't have it, hasn't had this experience can understand. The toll it takes on your mind and your body to not only survive that fear, it, it's like, you know, if you're afraid of heights, you know, they, they use that, what's that theory they use, you know, the conquering theory or the, you know, you just have to go stand on the ledge for a little bit. You stand on, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. there's a difference between standing on a ledge, okay, and then starting to hang from the ledge from yeah. two hands. Well, now I'm just going to hang with one hand. Now I'm going to see if I can hang on with two fingers. And then, I mean, like, that is how much it takes its toll on you on a routine basis when it comes to your own mortality in combat. And the problem is, is that, you know, no one willfully, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, walks back into combat again. Like we don't start wars just to fulfill the need of 
learning how to to be in a place where you're comfortable with dying. Like it, it's the, this is something that that we can't control, which is why it manifests itself in other ways, right? Manifests itself through guys committing crimes and everything else because there's a certain rush from it. And I'm not justifying any behavior by any stretch, but I think you understand where I'm going with this. Um, mm-hmm. It's that because you're an existentialist and we're having these philosophical conversations, it, it bears it bears kind of you know addressing it in this manner. But you know, it, it's just that simple and difficult to deal with at the same time when you get numb to your own mortality that you do. And I remember doing things and looking back and I see pictures. I'm like, yeah, that was stupid. (laughs) That was really dumb. Like why, why, why did I do that? I didn't have to do that, but I did it anyway. So uh, I I get where you're coming from with that. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I was all that stuff transferred directly to my time in the States too. Um, You know, and I think with that comes like a numbness to that, uh, also translated into like my romantic relationships, you know, like sure. you trying back. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to give a shit about anything mm-hmm. um, that is important in the relationship, but not, you know, life threatening was, was pretty difficult. And I was doing stuff like, I, I, I mean, I wasn't saving. I was, I wasn't acting like somebody that was planning on getting older. So blowing all my money. Every time I come home, I'm, you know, I went and spent like 17 days in Rio. I bought like a Cadillac XLR. I was riding around, you know, I, I was, I was out just getting into it. And, um, and I would intentionally put myself in situations in the civilian world uh, where things could kind of quickly turn bad because that was as close as I could get to feeling something again. And it really took the fear of, you know, seeing my guys deploy again without me if I got caught doing something stupid that pulled me back out of it. Right. And I, I think that's generally how you have to deal with all of that stuff. There has to be like some type of incentive to convince you to, you know, try and find different ways to to feel, you know, b- before you start actually trying to approach it professionally. All right. So that deployment ends, you come back yeah. uh, full of piss and vinegar, uh, all cocky as all hell because, you know, yeah. you survived and you're a badass and uh, all that. Anything about your mindset change uh, from that 15 year old kid who knew he wanted to be in the infantry and everything else? It, it, does, does, is there any moment where you feel fulfilled by everything you've done? Oh, man. So that that mission where I'm talking about, I you know the, the four days of fighting, I reenlisted for six years on that mission. Um, <laughs> I was like, this is it. You know, <laughs> I reenlisted six years, PDA or P- is it, yeah, it's been so long. I've been out. Yeah, yeah, present duty assignment. And, um, you know, I was, I, I, I don't remember if I reenlisted in the back of like a Hilux that we'd taken a dishka out of or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was like, this is it. This is, this is my thing. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it, it did, it did change. It, it turned into, you know, me viewing it as something I was good at. And, right. um, and I, I really felt like this is what I was meant to do. And, and I, I really, as much as I think you can over the long run, enjoy your time in that space. I did until eventually, you know, as I started to see the, the war evolve and stuff, then I saw the job a little differently, but um, yeah, at the time I was all in and wanted to keep doing it. All right. So how long uh, do you have between deployments when you hit your second one? I don't remember. It was probably about a year or something okay. like that before I went back for another year. All right. When you and go back the second time, where what year month are we talking about? Do you remember? I, I think it was pretty much the calendar year of 2010. 
Okay. If I remember correctly, I think we're talking January to December, well, somewhere around there. The interesting part is that this is where Afghanistan is starting to pick back up. Yeah. It, it had gone dormant for about 10 years. I mean, honestly, you know, after all the major bombing in, in the late 2001, early 2002, uh, by the time you get to 2003, there's not really much going on there. Uh, yeah. A couple of major skirmishes going on, but, you know, obviously you have uh, uh, Cop Keating in 09 and uh, a bunch of other things, you know, major battles that had happened. But for the most part, it was relatively quiet until you get 2010, 2011, and it starts to pick back up. Uh, where are you going this second time around? Yeah, so this time they uh, completely different mission had us in northwestern Afghanistan. I think I was about an hour and a half north of Herat. I was kind of up there with the Spanish. And, uh, you know, they sent 60 of us out. We were setting up a cop in an area where there wasn't, you know, anything previously. So we, oh, fun. Yeah, so we were, you know. So it's we obviously were, you're in austere conditions the entire time. Yeah, yeah. We were digging in and uh, we were just kind of pushing out. We were trying to establish, you know, like a, a sphere of influence in this area where nobody'd been for, I, I, I really don't know the last time somebody'd been there because the Spanish had, had right. quite a trek to get up there. And um, you were there to win hearts and minds, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was great. You know, we'd push, you'd get about a mile outside of the cop and then you generally get shot at from from somewhere. Um, that deployment, though, the, the fighting was was at a greater distance. It was a lot of hilltop to hilltop fighting. A lot more of it was mounted for us. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, at, at one point we did we, we lost a guy on one hilltop. And so then at that point, we pushed out and we started. Uh, establishing a presence on those hilltops. So then we created okay. OPs and dug in. Did that uh, moment where you lost the guy have any impact on you? Yeah. Yeah. It, w- it was huge. And for me, I, I talk about this in the show a little bit too. Um, you know, I, I think there's things that can be easily discussed about combat and it feels responsible to discuss. And then I think there's things that, you know, it, it feels very much like not, not my place. Um, the guy that we lost on the hilltop when, when I was writing the show, I wanted to reference him and I was going to change his name. And I reached out to his dad to talk to him about it. And he was like, no, please, you know, keep my, my son's name in there. And uh, so, so I did, but I, I feel like there's always this fine line between trying to share what the experience is and trying to make sure that you don't tell someone else's story or, you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm never sharing anything that anyone's parents or siblings or kids or widows are going to look to and say, like, what, why is he saying that? Or, you know, I, sure. I and so so I kind of I, I protect a lot of the details of those events pretty closely. But I do I share them. You know, I share them with my girlfriend. I share them with my parents. And I find that I have to be able to discuss them just to to make sure that I can still kind of control myself emotionally. And I don't let those experiences get the best of me when they kind of pop up unwanted. So, um, yeah, I mean, for me, it, it, it was rough. It was a, a rough experience. Um, Is this a close friend you had mentioned before? Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was, yeah. Uh, he, he was, he was a, he was a good friend. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were both squad leaders in the same platoon. Um, yeah. And, you know, and it, it, it was rough. And then coming back and the whole, you know, being a squad leader, being in charge of the OP, kind of grieving at the same time, trying to keep the guys, um, you know, the, the guys focused on the mission and, you know, and keep them trusting in you. You know, they feel like there's this balance between 
you know, letting them know you're grieving, but at the same time, making sure that they know that you're also tactically sound, like you're not, you're not compromised, but it's, it's also okay to grieve this. And so I think there was that, that balance there um, to, to try and find. And I, I think that me and the other squad leaders were able to find it, but it, 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 was, a, it was a pretty difficult time for sure. Does the romantic notion of combat that you had as a young man and even through basic training and even after your first deployment, is that now dead? Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Completely. How much, how much is that hard for you to deal with and in, in, of clashing realities that this is what you had wanted for so long you had attained it. Um, and, and for lack of a better term, it's like having a dream of yours snatched away from you. Um, and, and really it's not because you did anything. It's just because combat is what combat is and it's random. And so, um, was, did, were you able to realize at the time that that was something else that was messing with your mind? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I could see it, you know, in other aspects of my life too. I mean, that's something I could also see carrying over real, you know, romantically with, with my family, um, as well. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that on that first deployment, the, the fighting changed from, you know, the me being out there trying to discover who I was to like, Hey, I think I'm good at this. I think I'm proficient. I think I can help other guys get through this and come back. Uh, but it, it was it was serious at that point. And then there was also this sense of like, you know, that I'm I'm going to catch one at some point here. Um, and I guess you, you just I, I hadn't thought about, you know, losing the people that I cared about as much as I thought about losing my own life. And I think you get you know more comfortable with the idea of losing your own life. And so then, you know, when you lose, to your point, it's a dangerous place to be. Like, it's not natural to value someone else's life over your own. That's not like direct family. Mm-hmm. You know, like when, when it, when there's a blood relation, it's, it, but natural. And again, this goes back to basic Darwin instincts and everything else, you know, survivalism, uh, the most primal of instinct, keep yourself alive first, uh, mm-hmm. goes out the window. And that, that puts you in a very odd footing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it is, it's, it's a unique situation for sure. And then, um, and then I think because of that, when you do lose someone, you know, I know for me, like immediately I, I wanted revenge and a lot of guys wanted revenge. Yeah. And so then you're like, Hey, let's, let's go get in another fight. I remember I carried his grenade the rest of that deployment. And I was like, I'm, I'm taking somebody with this and I never did. Um, but but I remember that being the mentality after his death. Does it bother you that you never did? Not now. Okay. At the time, it did. Do, um, do you do you look back on that and go, "Well, that was stupid." Like his, <laughs> like you know, I, I carried around yeah. his grenade as opposed to using any other grenade. Yeah. You know, I mean, does it seem? And I don't mean to, you know, obviously I'm not no, no. your friend, but it's just like one of those things you look back and go, yeah, "It was kind of stupid at the time, but it felt right, so I did it." Yeah. Um, yeah. It it did. It felt like. You know, I mean, it, it was from his kit, so it felt like this is part of him. Yeah, it's part of him that I'm carrying. Yeah, and I mean, and it it felt like I I, I still have, even at the end of the deployment, I couldn't bring myself to like hand it over to someone else. So since we were out at OPs, I detonated it. Uh, well, I mean, I I threw it off a hill before uh, before the end of that deployment because because I still had felt weird to give it to somebody else. So. Yeah. That's cool. No, I mean, listen, I get it. You know, a hundred percent get it. I just wonder after time passes, if your perspective changes on it. So I probably would have, would, would have done the same thing with it. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it at does. least kept the at least kept the pin, the bullpen, you know, as a memento. I did. I keep, oh, you did. Okay. Yeah, I kept the bullpen. Okay, you still got it. Yeah. Awesome. That's that's great. Yeah. Um, you lose anybody else in that deployment? Um, I mean, it, our unit definitely lost guys, uh, but that that was the if from your the point. guy closest to me that we'd lost that I'd lost on. Um, you know, is is there a part of you when you get back that takes a moment of reflection? Because you never, you almost never do it while you're in it, uh, while you're there. But when you get back, is there a part of you that now looks at it and go, "None of this was worth it." Um, the only part of me that that feels that way. I mean, and uh, yeah, I, I never thought I'd be able to relate to Vietnam vets as much as this. But you know, in the times where we would go fight to take a hilltop. And we'd lose somebody on the hilltop and then we'd establish a presence. And then a couple months later, we leave the hilltop. And there's there's no longer an established presence there. I mean, there's the trenches we've dug. There's fighting positions up there now. But now we're leaving that. Um, and there were moments where, yeah, it, it, it felt like, what was that for? Why were we? Why were we up here fighting on this hilltop just to fight on this hilltop, just to push out our influence? to then at the end of this deployment, not replace that position with more individuals just to hand it back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that that was the time where I felt, you know, the most like, is, is this worth it? Um, or, or was there a point to it? Overall, though, with Afghanistan, I mean, I, I hope that I hope that our time there um, really like pr- provided enough hope to enough individuals there that they, they can, you know, hopefully find a way to a a better life individually. And I guess collectively as a country um, over the coming years, I know, of course, now they're, you know, in the state that they're in with, you know, the Taliban kind of running the show over there, but there's, I can't help but think there has to be like hope that while we were there, we showed them something that they might want to fight for in the future. So I assume that going to this third deployment, you don't have the same exact fervor that you had going from the first to the second. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think the the whole the whole perception had changed for me at that point. Um, it went from, you know, it, it, when I was younger, it was like the hey, like let's go get in the shit and uh, you know do what we do, and then you know by the time I got to my third deployment. You know, I, I think some of it, I think it's just general maturity. Um, you know, I'm not 19 anymore. And then the rest of it, of course, is, you know, um, the responsibility of being a squad leader for a while, um, you know, and, and really, really focusing on making sure that, you know, you're, you're bringing back the, the guys you took to the best of your ability. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I went from kind of wanting to get into this stuff to, wanting to make sure my guys were safe while at the same time, it, it, it was hard because I wanted to, I wanted them to be able to have the experiences that they wanted to have while at the same time, um, you know, wanting to minimize the, their risk. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it felt almost more now, paternal by my third say When you say you wanted them to have the same experiences you have, part of that experience is loss, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And well, the experience, I wanted them to have the experiences that they wanted to have, you know, if, if they were, 
if if they wanted to experience a firefight, I, I wanted them to. Does that sound to crazy to say after all these years? <laughs> I mean, like, yes, I wanted my guys to get shot at. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, doesn't I, always include you being on the winning side of things. I, I know. And I think that, uh, you know, I think if if my options were, <clears throat> you know, if I if I got to somehow decide how this would play out and I got to decide we we get in a firefight but I have no idea how it's going to turn out or we don't get in a firefight. I mean, 10 times out of 10, I'm picking no firefight. Um, but there, there is something to like, you know, I, I know that my guys are looking for that experience. I know, I know that something like a combat infantry badge means something to those guys and that they, sure. and they're looking for those experiences um, and so, you know, I, I wanted them to feel like they had that experience, but I wanted it to, you know, you get to the point you, you want to, you want to kind of, um, you know, make it, it sounds crazy to say like as safe as an experience as possible, sure. but, but it does get to the point where, you know, you, you know what you've been through and you think about your guys being on the ground without you and, uh, the idea of, how how bad things might go if there's individuals on the ground without the experience you know of things going bad and uh, so yeah i mean really that was my whole focus that deployment was really on my guys and that was when i started to see more a lot more explosives a lot more you know ieds trip wires and strings glass jar ieds um you know booby trapped rpg heads all kind of all kinds of stuff like that and so the war changed for for me too at that point and um started to feel more like you were just kind of out there yourself well you, you know you were out there with your guys but you and your guys were alone and there wasn't so much an enemy to fight anymore it, it felt like in a lot of ways for us and so that's when I, I started to kind of become disenfranchised with the the idea of fighting as a whole um, as well then, just because, I mean, personally on my last deployment, uh, I don't think I got shot at ever. If I can think it was eight months. I, I don't think that happened at all. Um, I, I know, I know there was, there was some of the guys went out. It did happen for some of the guys. Um, but for me personally, it was none of the, none of the missions I was on. Does the staff Sergeant James polling at that moment, think about, the kid who re-enlisted in the back of a Helux truck uh, for six years because this is what he wanted to do. Uh, is there any part of you, probably not at the moment, but like in retrospect, when you think about it, you know, um, what would Staff Sergeant Polling say to, what was it, PFC Polling back at the time? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think about this with the show now, too, because I'm like, you know, people are like, hey, you should go do something for like the enlisted guys. I'm like, man, if, if, if like PFC Polling meant staff sergeant pulling there might be times where i'm be like this guy's a pussy like this guy you know like this guy doesn't get it he doesn't want to go get into the shit and um <laughs> and that's that's how i i feel about the show sometimes too now uh but i i think that um you, you asked, sorry you asked about like the staff sergeant talking to like the yeah no i just i mean like, like yeah. do, do you think about that that young guy who was who said, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I want to do. And now you're a guy sitting there going, no, this is not what I want to do. This is not where my head or my heart is anymore. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think some of it was, you know, what was going on at home for me that, that helped make me that person. Sure. Um, but yeah, there, there was a sense of, you know, the, I, the type of fighter that I chose to become on my first deployment, you know, I, I was, I was the guy that, you know, I, I'd put in some like heavy shit and I'd be listening to some music and I'd be like laying on the tarmac, <clears throat> you know, ready to go out and, and fuck some stuff up. And I would really like take on that identity. You know, I would really be like, I'm, I'm going to be out there and I'm going to like bring the wood to some people, you know? And, and I, I started to see that bleed over into my civilian life between the deployments. And so by my last deployment, I, I was slowly letting go of that because I was seeing that it wasn't helping me at home. Um, you know, I'd, I'd been dating a girl for four and a half years, I picked out a ring, I was planning a proposal. And uh, she ended up ending the relationship while I was deployed on my, on my last deployment. And she'd been with me through my second deployment. I mean, she, she'd been there through a lot. Um, and luckily, I was just mature enough to look at how I affected that. And then it was, once I started looking at that, I mean, it was really easy to see, you know, I've been completely apathetic for years. I mean, there's, I, I haven't taken into account how she feels about pretty much anything. We've mm-hmm. done what I wanted to do when I've wanted to do it. And, um, and, and I realized that, you know, in taking on that persona fighting, I was taking that persona home as well. And so on my last deployment, as I wasn't seeing the fighting anymore, but I, w- I was seeing the, the IEDs and the, you know, the booby traps everywhere. Um, I started to think like, maybe, maybe it's not worth it to own that persona anymore. Sure. Yeah. And sorry, I was just giving that a second because my <laughs> thing going on. Um, I started to think that that persona wasn't worth it anymore. And that's when I, I was trying to figure out, you know, can't, can I still be that fighter that I want to be? And then balance that with being somebody that can go home and be compassionate, compassionate to my young relatives and can, you know, sit there with my romantic partner and, and be there for them emotionally, be there for myself emotionally to the point that it's even an option for me to be there for them emotionally. I mean, the fact that you're realizing and at the time, I'm sure the letters PTSD never came into your head. But the fact yeah. that realizing what you're experiencing, uh, which are key components of post-traumatic stress, um, is pretty pretty impressive when you look back on it. Yeah. I, a lot of us, it takes 10, some, it takes years, some 5, some 10, 15 years for you to come to the recognition that this is what I'm feeling. Yeah, and I, I think that, uh, I think a lot of it had to do with the ending of that relationship, if I'm being honest, because you know, she ended it. I didn't really know why or what was going on at the time, you know, and then, uh, you know, you'd have like the friends in the unit around you that'd be like, no, fuck her, man. She, you know, and I think I was just mature enough. Luckily that when I would hear that, I'd be like, well, well, no, wait. I mean, like I've kind of treated her like shit, like for, for a while now, sure. like I probably had this coming, you know, maybe I can fix it. <laughs> and I was like, just mature enough to, to kind of, be a little self-critical for the record as guys, we all have it coming. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you're right. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, Sometimes I it lands right in your face. Exactly. And I was just fortunate that I was, 
just mature enough to lean into it a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then oh. that's, that's when I started to think like, oh, I, I think I have to do something different because I don't okay. think I can be who I want to be in the civilian world and maintain the type of individual that I chose to be in this world. Do, do you ever stop to think that a lot of people who get in that spot lean into the natural and easy thing, which is what is right in front of them, which is the army, which is where I am. I've invested this much time. Why walk away from it? Because general fear of change and taking a risk and, you know, all those memes you see on the internet, don't be afraid to take a risk. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the only thing you need to change is yourself. Uh, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you internet for, for giving me motivational tips on life. Uh, and, and how to make a, a, a sheet pan quesadilla. Anyway, um, so d- is there any part of you that leans into, is surprised you didn't lean into what you conveniently knew? I mean, I, I was looking at packets, you know, it was like, you know, do I do like an EOD packet? Do I do a flight packet? Do I try to do like a green to gold thing? Um, but at, at the end of the day, I... I'd felt like whatever I was looking for from my military experience I'd gotten. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was at a point with the transition of the war that I, I didn't feel like leaving my guys was leaving them vulnerable. Um, you know, I, I felt like it was a time where I could step out and, and they'd be all right. Um, you know, and it's funny cause it's, it's easy for me to say that because I spent eight years in one platoon, whereas like most people are moving around enough. So they don't have that sense of like, these are my guys, but I mean, they were, they were my guys. And, um, you know, I just, I, I couldn't help, but think that there, I, I could do something, something different. I was just ready for another challenge. And I, I thought that challenge could come outside of the military. Did you know what that challenge was at that moment? No, I had no idea. So you're leaving the military and have no idea what's next. I, I was confident in my ability to be successful in some way outside of the military, but I had no idea what that route would be. I got out. I was a bartender for like two years when I got out. I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was probably like the worst job I could have picked leaving the military, but it was a good time. Listen, I bartended too. Um, yeah. If you're in your mid twenties, it's, it's the worst, best job you can have. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's the worst job because you're just grinding nonstop. You work insanely weird hours. Your body clock is all thrown off. You make okay money every now and then you get a bump. Yeah, you know, but you're basically living cash paycheck to paycheck kind of deal. And uh, you're having a whole lot of fun doing it. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's get hopped up and make some bad decisions, as they say. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's a bartender's lifestyle. Um, on, the, on the flip side of this, before you start figuring out your career, you've already – been able to sort of self-diagnose some of the things that you were feeling. Do you actually go and get them looked at professionally yet? Or is this that not coming until later down the road? Yeah, not. Uh, yeah. Um, it, it took a while. Actually, right before I got out of the military, I started to see a little bit of it. I, um, I, without getting into it too much, I would lost a guy right before I got out. And so I, um, I, Over, I overseas or back home, no back home. And so I, I escorted him to Arlington and, uh, oh. and so the drive to Arlington, um, that, that was like one of the first times where I really started to look back on my, my military experience as a whole and try to understand it. I mean, I'd, I'd recognize too, on that drive, like I haven't let myself grieve for anything, you know, I just been burying all of it. And so 
I think I started to grieve at that point. And when I got out of the military, I, w- I was still grieving. Um, I was having the, the physical post-traumatic stress reactions. You know, the, the first one actually happened after my first deployment. I was still in. But uh, there was a helicopter coming in to land at a hospital near my dad's house and like full, you know, like my heart's racing. I'm nauseous. I'm shaky. You know, I'm just trying to, to keep it together. And uh, over years from that point, I would just sit on my couch. I'd think about fights that would happen again. And then I'd like breathe it out. And without having any idea what exposure therapy was, I was kind of doing my own exposure therapy. So that carried over into me getting out of the military as well. But then I was starting to grieve for the first time too. So, you know, I, if, if I would find something would give me that physical reaction, I would, I would breathe it out. I'd think about it. I'd keep trying to do it to myself to try and lessen, you know, the, the physical effects it would have on me. Um, at the same time, I was, I mean, I was drunk a lot. I was hungover a lot. And so I'd, I'd get up and I'd, just be thinking about the friends I'd lost. I'd be thinking about their families, be thinking about their kids. And, um, and it, it probably it's a, a year and a half, two years. I just let myself be sad while doing that. And then I think after, after I let myself grieve for that amount of time, I, I started to feel like happy again in ways that I hadn't in a long time. And then I started being able to reconnect to some of the emotion and then uh, I remember I, I was numb for such a long time. I remember I had my music turned up pretty loud. I was driving through an intersection and a cop had their sirens on. I didn't hear them and they blew through the intersection too. And we were kind of close to each other. And I had like a little bit of that adrenaline feeling. And I remember being like ecstatic because I was like, holy shit. I get that was I that's the first time I felt like adrenaline outside of one of those like triggering events in years and so I was like cool I think I'm getting back to a point where you know my my body's finding its baseline again Um, and so yeah really getting out there was all these things that I was working through but none of it was uh, through the VA at the time none of it was um, me seeking any professional help Um, at the end of the day it was really like the Affordable Care Act that sent me to the VA oh really yeah, I was worried about like getting fined for not having health insurance. And I knew I had like the five free years at the VA. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, that's what actually sent me in. But I'd been out for a couple of years at that point. All right. So back to your career standpoint, you're bartending and you're trying to figure out what's next. How do you come across what is next? Uh, man, I was, I was bartending for a while. I was about to go like, was this girl that... Uh, great friends with, I was about to go like couch surf the Philippines with her when, you know, like in true, right. True, like vet fashion. Um, and I just, I, I'd met this girl that I really liked. Uh, she had all of her shit together. She's awesome. You know, she'd like just finished like a pre-med degree. It was doing, which at this point is the polar opposite of you. Yeah. She's, she has, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She has all of her shit together and I have none of it. Yeah. Just gorgeous has all of her shit together. And for some reason, she's like paying a little bit of attention to me. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, she's, you know, big brothers, big sisters volunteering at an animal shelter. Like, she, I mean, she's just a sweetheart. And I, I was like, man, if, if I go to the Philippines, she's not going to stick around. So, you know, I decided not to do that. Mm-hmm. But I was like, man, I'm, she's, she's not going to want to date like this dude that's just bartending and kind of like a mess all the time. So I went and signed up for a couple classes at a local community college and 
one of the two classes was an English class and the first assignment in that English class was a memoir. And so like I went to the, uh, went to the professor and I was like, Hey, I want to write you something honest. Uh, I just want to make sure you're not going to like turn me into anybody. Like I'm okay, but I want to give you, you know, like a, an, an honest snapshot of what I think my experiences have been. And then after showing that to her, she asked to share it to some vet people. Then I started being asked to sit uh, on panels and do some veterans day speeches, Memorial day speeches. And, uh, the more I got pulled into that environment, the more I found like a, a veteran support system there that really helped me kind of bridge who I was before and in all of those experiences with like really who, who I thought I could be and pull the best parts of, you know, my military experience. And even though I was having hard times there, there, there of course were like great qualities that the military was teaching me and helping me hone and I wanted to be able to lean into those while at the same time addressing, you know, some of the more negative elements of where I was and uh, really just started with school and then speaking a little more. And, you know, I quickly transferred to like a four year university and then just some of the the professors there, they wanted to open their personal networks to me. They they became good friends of mine. And uh, they, they really helped mentor me through it. Uh, and then, of course, other successful vets came in. And uh, now there's no shortage of awesome examples that I have anytime I hit a snag that I can lean on. That's awesome. Um, so when do you meet your friend Dom? Uh, I forget his yeah. last name. Forgive me, talked about him earlier. Who has this idea to take your story and everything honest and truthful that you wanted to say and make it into a performance art, musical, immersive experience. Yeah, so he was doing this music video first. It was like a Tom Waits cover for a music video. And the film crew's film crew from The Deadliest Catch. He had like a bunch of cool shit around it. But right. I mean, you know, he's, he's an awesome dude. But he's, he's like, a, he's a Juilliard kid. Like, you know, he, he spent his life in the arts. Um, he doesn't know individuals like us. Right. Well, he didn't, he didn't know individuals like us. Because individuals and, like us don't spend much time in the arts for the right. We, we, yeah, there's, there's not, not a lot of, of us. Venn yeah. diagram intersection there, there's right? Not. <laughs> you got like Adam Driver somewhere in the middle there, and that's about it. Um, so, yeah, man, he just a, a mutual friend. They'd seen me speaking around Cleveland and uh, connected us in an email. And really, I just met with him just to ask him to be responsible with the messaging that he was putting in the music video. Um, was making sure that how did you know he was doing it? Like, did you did, did he connect you because he was doing the music video? Is that yeah, and the music yeah, a mutual friend was, connected us because of that. What was supposed to be what again? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, so it was this Tom Waits cover for a song called Soldiers Things, okay. And uh, lyrically, I it's about a soldier returning from war, and so he wanted to talk to somebody who'd returned from war to try and get a deeper understanding of the lyrics before making this music video. And that was when the mutual friend, you know, he'd mentioned it to him, that mutual friend connected us. And then I started asking him to be responsible with that messaging. Because so many times people from the arts, they, they are really well-meaning, but they just don't have this connection to this world. And so they think the, the idea of helping is to come in and do one of those things where it's like, you know, the people in the bathroom with a gun to their head, or it's, you know, somebody like screaming into a strobe light or something. And they're like, well, this is helping the vet community. And, uh, 
it, it, and it's really, it's just because they're, they're disconnected oh, from it, you know? And so, I mean, <laughs> to his credit, he, he was trying to get me to do this music video with him. I really did not want to. Um, I didn't want to be like the, the vet out there talking in front of a bunch of other vets about stuff that I thought maybe we shouldn't be talking about at the time. And, uh, you know, I really didn't know what I thought about it, I guess, if I'm being honest. And, uh, and so he offered me final edit that day. You know, he was like, if you work with me, you have final edit on anything we ever do. And then I was like, man, I either have to stop bitching about this like entirely, or I have, I have to do this. Like, I can't, I can't turn down an opportunity like this and then complain when I don't like the products. Sure. So, uh, I did the music video and we did an interview at the end of the music video. And, you know, that interview that we did led to more discussions and then people just kept coming around it and they wanted to fund something bigger. They wanted to share more of the messaging that we were discussing. And then we did a, a Kickstarter campaign for a proof of concept. We did like a 20 minute video and, and this was all his idea. Um, and he wanted to balance the narration music and then bring in multimedia. And the first time I started working on it, the VA sent a bunch of vets out to the place that we were rehearsing. So I was looking at two World War II vets. They were like five feet in front of me. And then I had some uh, Korean War vets, Vietnam vets, all the way to vets younger than myself. And I started like reading through my stuff. And then they started playing the music. And then one of the World War II vets started crying. And I was like, damn, this is, this is something. This is something like heavier than I thought this was going to be. Uh, and then the the more I leaned into it and really tried to focus on, you know, striking the right chord with the messaging, the more individuals came around and, and said things like the show was, you know, opening them up to the idea of therapy or opening them up to the idea of, you know, their, what their idea of protecting their family is might be a little more narrow than it should be. Maybe protecting their family does involve things like, you know, focusing on emotional development and, um, you know, being able to provide a little bit of vulnerability around your family um, to set that example. And, and so that at that point, once I started getting some of that feedback, man, it quickly turned into a passion. I mean, I, I I love doing it now. I mean, we, we have uh, tons of supporters around us now, both financial and with pro bono services, and um, I mean, I can't imagine doing anything else. COVID was rough when COVID hit. I didn't know how we were going to get through it. I, I was worried about it. I started studying for the LSAT, even though I don't want to be a lawyer. I just didn't know. I was like, what am I going to do after this? And, uh, you know, luckily our, our supporters made sure we survived it. And now we're, uh, we're, we're back out and on the road again and, and things look pretty good. Okay, so as you're trying to make this, how much of it, I mean, obviously it's your story, but how much of it do you want to just be good enough to everybody consume? Or do you just want to tell your story from your perspective? I mean, how do you balance all this? Yeah, so it's all my story from my perspective, um, but it's it's me being pretty self-critical. you know, the, the things that I wanted to be able to discuss with the community are things that I'm still working on, things that I've worked on in the past. And I thought that I could best do that by highlighting the things that I've fucked up over the years, you know, and how right, I've, right. I've worked through it. And in doing that, I found a lot of people that come and see the show 
absorb that and relate it directly to what they've been doing. I mean, I've taught with high school kids, um, you know, children of Holocaust survivors, children of World War II survivors. So many people have taken the show and come up to me afterwards and talk to me about how the show directly speaks to them uh, and how it helps them work through their stuff uh, outside of the vet community in a way that I, I never would have expected. Um, so I, I think that it's, it's really trying to dig into the story, trying to be self-critical while at the same time making sure that I'm not sharing stories that I don't feel I have the right to share. And that's where we get into the, you know, the loss of any friends um, and not even necessarily just the loss of friends and moments of vulnerability for individuals that aren't myself. Um, things like, you know, there's things that I, I just want to make sure any messaging that, that goes out is, is responsible that we're not leaning into anything weird, like the, you know, like the violence porn or, you know, people can kind of go down some of those rabbit holes and that's really not what it's about. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's a fine line there. Like when I talk about deploying, uh, trying to figure out a way to talk about deploying in a way where, you know, I think civilians can maybe understand it a little bit and vets of course get it, um, without getting into any jargon or anything. So I talk about, like being in a room with my dad and then leaving the room to deploy. And like my dad's crying, you know, and I, and I haven't seen my dad cry since I was like six, you know, and just that, that discomfort of being there, seeing your dad vulnerable, um, you know, leaving, watching your family console him and stuff. That was the stuff that uh, I wanted to put into the show because I, I hoped that if we lean into the experiences in a universal way, we can build a foundation for those experiences. And then vets can have those conversations with their loved ones, but the communities can have the conversations as well. And so it's my hope that when people see the show, if they've had similar experiences, they could point to the show and say, Hey, remember when he was talking about this? Well, here's how my experience was different, or here's how that didn't go this way for me. But, you know, it, um, you know, it affected me in this other way, or I've had these other symptoms. How many iterations did you have to go through to get it right? Of the script? Yeah. Oh man. I, when I, well, when I wrote it, I got drunk for like a month. I flipped my <laughs> sleep schedule. I was up all night just drinking and writing and just like pouring my heart. I was a complete mess for like a month as I was doing it. And then at the end of the month, I flipped my sleep schedule back, sobered up and uh, started editing. And I was lucky. I had awesome editors. I mean, I had uh, my friend Orlando, who's this amazing, like spoken word poet who I'd met through Dominic. Uh, he came around and he's looking at the stuff that's happening in Afghanistan. And he's like, man, this is, this is what inner city violence feels like. This is what it feels like to grow up in neighborhoods where there's shootings on your block. And, and so then we started to see the parallels between like combat and inner city violence. And I worked with him through some of the editing. And then our director came in, uh, Emmett Murphy, who's just, you know, amazing director. Uh, he, he came in and he was like, hey, you know, I think maybe if we kind of switch the positions of these two chunks, it'll make a better storyline, it'll flow better. And so he helped me edit. So I would say there was, there was two or three months um, kind of between the 20 minute video and then the full show where I had individuals helping me edit it, but uh, getting all of the content down on paper was about a month. And as, as I would write it, I'd kick things to Dominic and I'm not an artist, uh, 
by any stretch of the imagination, but I would kick stuff to Dominic. He'd kick me back some music that he wrote. And I'd be like, man, this music doesn't feel right. But then I'd look at what I wrote and I'm like, well, the, the music kind of matches what I wrote. So then I'd have to dig into it more and be like, shit, did I like internalize this in a different way than I think I did? Am I misremembering something? Like, why doesn't this feel right? And there's times like his music would send me back into experiences and I'd have to pick through them and be like, oh shit, I, I forgot about this thing. And this is why this music feels weird. And then, you know, he, he did help me shape it uh, during that month. I mean, obviously everyone's personal story is a journey as is yours. Was it hard to balance PFC polling versus staff sergeant polling and who deserved more of the time? Um, no, but I, th- no, but I think they have two very different voices. You know, and there's there's times where they come together in the show. Um, you know, when I'm talking about you know uh, shooting individuals, and I I mention you know when people would ask me what it feels like to shoot someone, and I'd say it feels like a grilled you know what's it feel like to make a grilled cheese? Like that's very much like a PSC polling answer to that question. But then I would follow it up with you know as I would dig into it, my points more that like the environment shaping that experience, and I'm not. I don't have a specific feeling from shooting someone a lot of the time. Sometimes I do. Sometimes there's relief. Like, all oh, my guys are safe for a minute. Sometimes it's like, hey, you know, I'm not going to catch a bullet in the next 30 seconds now. So that's cool. Um, but then I also balance that with, you know, a lot of times killing somebody's a collective effort. I talk about that in the show. Like when people ask vets, oh, did you kill someone? There's so many people that were like online with a squad shooting into some bushes or shooting a van or something that was shooting at them. And so, yeah, like eight guys killed four guys. And then you ask somebody, did they kill someone? They don't know. Yes, maybe, you know, like the collectively they were shooting something together. And so I try to talk about how, like, you know, a lot of times killing someone's a collective experience. And and what does it feel like to shoot into some bushes or shoot a van and it's, it's a more complicated conversation than I think a lot of people want to jump into when people talk about, ask, you know, like, oh, did you kill somebody? That, that whole question. And so in that moment, you know, the whole grilled cheese things like the PFC polling voice and then the collective effort, what's it feel like to shoot a bush, all that stuff. That's kind of the, uh, the staff sergeant voice. And, and I think through the whole, the whole show, those narratives are, or balanced, it leans more at the beginning towards the PFC voice. And uh, at the end, I mean, it's, I, I think it's me kind of retroactively looking back. We actually have a 10 minute segment of the film that we created with a local news anchor named Leon Bibb, who's a Vietnam vet. And he, he'll come in and he'll talk about Vietnam for like, you know, about 10 minutes across three different sections. And there we really try to highlight the parallels, but he's able to, you know, take a, a decades long, you know, look back on his experience. Whereas, you know, now for me, I'm, I'm looking back like 10 years. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that voice continues to evolve from PSC to staff sergeant to me. And then when we have Leon to Leon. So how do you know when the project is complete? Like, how did you, you get a sense of knowing that I think we've got to where we want to be. And I always use the adage, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Uh, because sometimes if you try to make it too perfect, you're going to end up driving yourself crazy. So how did you know when you would hit that sweet spot? Um, I mean, there, there was a, a timeline element to it uh, that, you know, I, I think 
it kept us, you know, working on a specific schedule. Uh, but really, by the time I'd finished the script, I I felt like I had gotten all of my thoughts about the experience out. And then maybe I have edited some sections out, but I had plenty of time to really pour over what I was going to pull out and what I wasn't. Um, so I, I felt like I had a pretty complete picture in the show when I finished it. Uh, but that was six years ago. And so now there's, there's things that I want to go back and add. I get asked a lot, you know, what is, what is that specific path to post-traumatic growth? You know, what, what does that path look like? And when I wrote it, I couldn't have given an answer for it. But now I'm starting to realize that it comes down to a, a series of individual decisions and priorities and whether that decision is I'm going to be willing to go talk to someone for the first time or I'm going to stop this one specific destructive behavior and replace it with this slightly less destructive behavior. Um, you know, and so I, I want to go back and revisit it and try and lay that out in a, a little cleaner way. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, that, that month of just drinking and writing really kind of got it all out of me. I mean, it was ridiculously therapeutic just to kind of let everything pour out onto a page. Um, but by the time I was done with that, I was, I was pretty good with what was there. When you watch the show now, are you still watching it through a critical lens? Um, in, in terms of like uh, me being self-critical or in terms of like the, the critical, like this is a piece of art we created and it could be improved critical. The second one, the latter, the second one. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's mostly my delivery. I mean, the, the multimedia and the music, like those guys are awesome. Like I, I have nothing to try and improve on their end. You know, it's, it's more my delivery. It's more words I might say you know, um, that I, maybe I want to change the phrasing of something. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, it's, it's not too bad. I, if, if really, I mean, if I were to sit down and just watch a film of the show, um, it kind of feels like a, like a therapy session almost, you know, like it, it still gets to me because when I'm, performing the show, I'm thinking about the actual performance as well as what I'm saying. But when I'm watching it, I'm, I'm kind of reliving it the whole time. So um, yeah, something has to be pretty glaring for me to be like, oh, man, I need to work on that instead of, you know, me just continually evaluating what I'm saying in there and how I might feel about something now versus when I'd wrote it. Um, what's the audience reaction been for the most part? I mean, obviously, yes, they, they, they like it, but you know, when you hear from veterans, what are some of the things they say to you? Man. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Like I, I have tons of conversations with vets after the show. I mean, we, we have a conversation after every show where we pass microphones around the audience. Dominic Mm -hmm. and I will just hang out, sit on stage and we'll, talk about whatever the audience wants to talk about um, or if they just want to share their experiences, they can talk about it. And so I would say that usually lasts you know, like an hour. And then after that, everybody who didn't want to publicly talk kind of comes to the stage. And so I'm hanging out at the front of the stage while they're breaking down and I just have vets and uh, mostly vets, but sometimes it's high school students, it, it, you know, just up there wanting to talk to me 
about their experiences. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky because I'm always trying, like in the same way, I'm trying to figure out what's appropriate to put in the show. I always try to figure out what's appropriate to share from what they share with me. Um, you know, on, on one end, it's a lot of non-vets, a lot of family members saying like, I, I can now relate to, you know, my, my dad, son, husband, daughter, girlfriend, whatever, uh, in a way that I couldn't prior to this, uh, we get that a lot from Vietnam couples, Vietnam, uh, vets and spouses. Um, and you know, then a lot of my vet friends, you know, I get a whole lot, a whole lot of uh, my friends have said things like, you know, they come up and they're like, man, I want to hit you. I want to hug you. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly how I feel right now. Um, because I mean, we, we do try to responsibly push some buttons and, and if there's something there that can be worked on, like we, we do want to draw that to the surface and on the far other end, I mean, there's things from like, I, I was going to kill myself next week and now I'm going to go talk to someone first or, um, you know, just, uh, ideas like I, you know, I, I had this method in mind. I mean, there, there's been some pretty serious conversations centered around suicide that have happened after the show. Um, and then because of how emotional that can get, we always have resources on site. So we're a 501 C three and we partner with other nonprofits around the country, we partner with the VA partner with veteran service officers. So in the lobby, we'll have a VA outreach table. We'll have a crisis line table, but then sometimes we'll have like team red, white, and blue. You know, um, you know, they generally try to have like four or five resources out there because, you know, if we have a 500, you know, like a 500 person audience, we may have one or two people get up and like step into the lobby for a second and then step back in. Like you can see that they've reached a level of physical discomfort during the show that they want to get up and move around, but they still want to watch the show. So there's people standing up in the back by the end, but we want to make sure when somebody steps out of that room, there's somebody in that lobby or that hallway, wherever we might be, that can catch them and be like, hey, are you okay? You know, we can talk. We have a lot of the vet center services on site. We'll have the bus there a good bit of times. Um, and so we, we want to have those intense conversations with individuals. We hope that we can help them take a few steps towards you know, improving their situation, but we want to also make sure we have that warm handoff. So we're not having this show evoking that response in individuals and then just like letting them out into the street without helping kind of transition that experience to, you know, what tangible next steps could be. Do you think that it'll ever stop being rewarding for you? Is there a time where you think this ends? Maybe I need a new project. Maybe I need to tackle yeah. an angle. Like, I mean, how do you yes. know, like they say, fashion is never finished. How do you know when art is finished? So, I, I mean, I think that I, I see our show as the first episode or the first season of something that could be a lot bigger. Um, and so, you know, we'll continue to do this. We'll continue to tour the show. But what I'm becoming passionate about as, you know, as we hopefully continue to saturate the market uh, is the, the opportunity to create works like this for other other markets essentially we you know i would love to have a show that parallels our show but addresses something like the opioid crisis 
and then find an individual with that lived experience who could then speak to it in the way that I'm speaking to the vet experience. And so we can create that piece for them and still have those resources involved and then have one for human trafficking, have one for domestic violence. I would love to get to the point where we have, you know, six or seven shows that we tour together or separately. Um, And then mine and Modern Warrior Live will just be one small piece of this larger movement to share stories, start conversations, and then connect the individuals in need to the resources that they have locally. Um, So, you know, hopefully I'll be transitioning more to a producer role years in the future, although I'll continue to do our show as long as it's in demand. Well, again, you guys can go to modernwarriorlive.org to see more about the show, uh, where you guys are coming up next, events, dates that you have, uh, ways they can connect with you and everything else, which, you know, again, I think is amazing. Um, I want to see it, man. Uh, You know, it's funny, and full disclosure, I think you had performed, and I got to double check where, but a buddy of mine sent me uh, this and said, hey, you need to get this guy on. You know, he's got a great show, and I'd love to hear more about it. Uh, on your podcast. Uh, I don't know where he saw it. I know he's, we went to college together. He's in the Baltimore area. So I don't know if you're in Baltimore. Mm. I, I'm DC. I'm DC. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we just did a show at the library of Congress. I think that's where he saw yeah. it. Um, so, but he had mentioned to me and, and uh, I'm excited to tell him that we finally connected and I got you on, but um, what are the kind of upcoming shows here in the near future that you can tell people about right now? Yeah. So um, I, I forget the exact day. I think there's still a little wiggle room there, but we're going to be doing, uh, we'll have some shows in Cleveland in November. Uh, we'll have shows in Columbus. Over the next couple of years, we're doing a good bit of stuff in Ohio. We just received our first National Endowment for the Arts grant uh, to do some focused work in Ohio. So next couple of years, we'll be doing Cleveland, Columbus, and then some rural areas around Ashland and Finley. Uh, we'll be spending a good bit of time in DC. We'll be going back for a show at the Library of Congress again in November. Um, there we've had a good relationship with the congressional military mental health task force. Mm-hmm. And so we've been able to, uh, to work with them to kind of expand the reach in the DC area. Um, we're looking to bring some stuff to the West coast. There's some conversations going well there in the LA area, but we'll try to get up and down the coast. And, um, and yet we're building out the, the tour for next year now. So if people go to modernwarriorlive.org, they'll be able to see as we expand that. We just kind of finished a little one hopping around between, uh, you know, New York, D.C., Kansas City, Nashville, stuff like that. So we're, we're on a little break for a minute, but uh, we'll be back out there soon. And, and where are you with your personal journey? I mean, how much more catharsis? Do you get from still doing this? Do you find you're still peeling back layers personally with all this? Oh man, every every day. I was I mentioned earlier the uh, the podcast I was listening to you. It's a Jason Kander. Is that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was an amazing podcast, and uh, yeah, I mean, I listening to that podcast. His language gave me language, um, and and it continued to help me focus where I am and where I want to go. And so, yeah, for me, it's, it's still a journey. You know, I, I'm, I'm still trying to, to find that right balance of, uh, you know, confidence and, and introspection, you know, there's, there's that fine line there. I'm still, you know, always kind of wondering, you know, like, am am I kind of being an asshole right now is a question I ask myself quite a bit, (laughs) you know, uh, 
and it's it's something I'm, I'm enjoying the ride but there's there's still plenty of work to be done there on my end I, well, I think I think the big first steps just uh, being willing to understand that of course there's stuff that you can work on and and being willing to jump into it and uh, you know be self-critical not not take yourself so seriously all the time and and uh, you know for me I got some young nephews now you know, the last thing I want to be is like that hard uncle that, you know, they, that doesn't joke around or, you know, that just, they, they just go to for like the war stories or whatever, you know, like I want to, I want to see what that, that other side of myself is, you know, I want to teach them to swim and, uh, you know, things like that. Just got a place with a zip line. Like I'm, I'm looking forward to transitioning to like the fun uncle. Um, and, and that's something that I think without continuing to work on myself, I wouldn't be able to do well. Well, look, it's been amazing talking to you. Um, I am beyond impressed at what you've been able to to put together. I mean, I, you know, you referenced that podcast with Jason Cantor. It took me a lot just to open up a little bit um, after a very long time. The idea that you've literally opened your life up and then made it into a uh, immersive musical and, and narrative experience to me is a whole different world of connection with yourself that I think is really hard to uh, really hard to get to. So uh, I commend you for that because again, arriving at this point for some people isn't easy. Um, And I know it hasn't been easy for you to arrive at this point, but that said, now that you're sort of here and swimming in it, it's producing something wonderful that many people are benefiting from. And at the end of the day, if modern warrior live gets people to ask questions and gets veterans to look a little bit inside themselves and gets veterans to challenge what they see in front of them, and confront what they feel on their own, then I think there's a certain measure of success to all of that in what you've done. And I don't think that can be underscored. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. Hopefully we'll be out there near you soon and link up and grab a beer in person. A hundred percent. Again, modernwarriorlive.org. He is James Poling. James, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you so much, Mark. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.